I didn't think about it. I mean, I think most people who think about writers assume that we enter into the process out of some personal passion. That it, it really bores me to hear writers talk about how I'm driven to write. I'm not driven to write at all. It's a job. It's 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 work. You put your butt in a chair and 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 you you crank out a certain number of words and so forth. When I I wrote my first novel. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Who you just heard in the introduction is the author of the international bestseller, The Big Mango, a book that sold several hundred thousand copies in Asia alone. In fact, it was so successful that the star of the HBO series The Sopranos, James Gandolfini, bought the rights to make it into a movie planning to star in it himself. And while they were planning to make that movie, James Gandolfini passed away. And it's those kind of coincidences that shaped the life of this author more than once. Today he's here to talk about his life, his experiences in Thailand, how he came to write his extremely popular crime thriller series, Jack Shepard and Samuel Tay, it's Jake Needham, who started out as a lawyer in the U.S. before becoming owner of a production company and finally a novel writer. And he tells us how this all came to happen in today's interview. And it all started out a bit more than 40 years ago. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok. It's Carsten, your host. And today I'm here with Jake Needham. Welcome to the podcast, Jake. Thank you very much, Carsten. So, Jake... When did you first set foot in Thailand? Oh, geez, I've got to reveal my age now, I guess. Um, I was here in the 70s, right after, uh, right after college. And uh, remember, that was um, pretty much the, the height of the Vietnam War, um, the Christmas bombing in Hanoi in 1972 and the like. And uh, I was teaching uh, um, while I was in law school at a... Uh, uh, Catholic girls' school in Washington, D.C., called Immaculata College for Women. Hmm. And one of my students' father was the CIA chief of station here. And uh, they hosted me for a while, and uh, I got to see what was going on out here in the early 70s. And he had one of his guys in sunglasses and a black jumpsuit take me up to Chiang Mai and jeep me around the countryside. And uh, that, in those days, you could drive just to the outskirts of Chiang Mai and the, uh, the opium poppy fields stretched away into the distance. And we drove no more than 15 or 20 minutes out to an opium poppy field, and he took me out in the fields and showed me how they harvested the, uh, the heroin base, and uh, that was just part of life here in the, in the 70s. Did you recognize that yourself, or did they have to tell you what that was? Well, I mean, I knew where I was going. I, I, my, my knowledge of, uh, of, of drugs was modest, but... Uh, um, It became much greater when I graduated from law school and I became a public defender in the District of Columbia, and that was in the heyday of drug cases in D.C., so I, I learned a lot then. But uh, but Thailand in the 70s was really quite remarkable. He uh, he lived over in one of those lovely old houses in the Jusmak compound, um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was then truly a different world. I think now it's not so much a different world, but then it truly was, and that... Uh, 
So I date back to the 70s here, man. That was a long time ago. Do you kind of long back for those days? Do oh, you no, not know? at all. That's, uh, you know, subsequent to that, I did a lot of international merger and acquisition work. And, and because I knew something about Asia, I ended up with all the Asian deals. And I was on a um, uh, board of directors of quite a large company in Australia and, and uh, Alan Bond, uh, Bond Corp, uh, which uh, was quite infamous then for their aggressive acquisition tactics. And I knew Asia fairly well. And it was actually because of Bondi that I, I ended up in the uh, the film business, of all things, because we owned uh, uh, the, the Nine Network in Australia and produced television and film there and, and put a lot of money into film production. And uh, ended up... Uh, when I decided to give up finance, buying a broken down little production company in, in L.A. And um, we began putting together mostly telefilms. Um, and it was because of uh, one of those that I wanted to shoot out here uh, that we uh, sold to HBO that I ended up coming back in the early 90s uh, when, when HBO bought the, the script they decided they ought to put somebody on the film. We had some vague idea where Thailand actually was, uh, and I was nominated. And uh, so um, I signed on as a, uh, as a producer for the film, as well as the screenwriter, and uh, we uh, shot it out here in the, uh, the very early 90s, which was, uh, which was my return, strange as it seemed. What's, what's the title of that film? Can people still find nah, it somewhere? It's, it's long disappeared. There was a, an American actress named Allie McGraw, who uh, Ali McGraw starred in Love Story, which is one of the great movies of the of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted a comeback vehicle for Ali, and, and that was Natural Causes. The problem was that Ali was crappy, and it was a, just a terrible film. And the <laughs> director made a complete mess out of it. It was released on, on DVD at some point, I think. But it was called Natural Causes. But uh, I'm not deeply prideful when it comes to that film uh, I, I was i was happy it steered me in the direction it did but as a film it sucked badly <laughs> what, what other things that are that you are really proud of oh wow that's a good question um you know i suppose when i i turned to writing novels it 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 came about not out of any kind of conviction that this was something I desperately wanted to do. It was really just kind of accidental. I mean, I became a screenwriter accidentally. I, uh, when, when I took over this little company, like every lawyer who had ever ended up in Hollywood, I was just convinced that all these people were sitting around waiting for me to come to town and explain to them how to run their business. And I put together this little business plan for the company, which I thought was a sort of wiser way to produce the uh, to approach the process of production and how we put stuff together and the kind of stuff we ought to be producing that fit within our resources and so forth. And about two, three months later, one of my guys came in. He said, I had great news. HBO wants to buy that treatment that you wrote. I said, what, what are you talking about? I've never written a treatment in my life. He said, no, no, that thing, that thing you gave me, that's, I, I gave it to HBO and they want to buy it. I said, for God's sakes, it was a business plan. It wasn't a script. Wait a second, you had like the, the thing that said like executive summary, table of contents. Yeah, well, sorry, like- I, well, it wasn't that elaborate. I mean, the idea was most film production companies run the same way, which is you, you say, well, I want to do this because it's a great script. And then somebody looks at it and says, yeah, it cost you $200 million to produce this. And, and I argued that we should work backwards, that what you do is you figure out, okay, who do I know? Uh, okay, if I can get a broken down old actor who can't get work now, but because his cousin's my friend 
then maybe we ought to try to figure out what kind of script could we put him in that would work. What kind of director could we get who, who you know and who would do you a favor to work for less money on this? What kind of uh, locations could we access? Where could we get that other people couldn't? And that was where Bangkok came out because I knew some people here and had some access. So I thought, great, I can access these locations, which a lot of other people probably couldn't. And, and so I wrote that in as an example, well, we could do this or we could, you could have this kind of movie and so forth. And that was what I sent them. That's what I mean by business plan. It was mm -hmm. a, a plan of this is the kind of material we should shoot. And this guy at HBO said, oh, it's great stuff. Let's shoot that. And that, that was when they said, oh, but you got to produce it. Because, and I, how do, I had no idea how to produce a film, for God's sakes. I wrote them, handed them to somebody else. They gave me a check, and I went home. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm glad it worked out as it did because uh, uh, I met my lovely wife when I was out here uh, shooting that film. And uh, that was 26 years ago. We've been married 25 years now. And uh, so I suppose it worked out pretty well after all. Uh, I think I think if you write a business plan and someone wants to turn that into a movie, I guess that gives you an idea that you're maybe kind of decent at that writing thing. <laughs> well, I you know I didn't think about it. I mean, I think most people who think about writers assume that we enter into the process out of some personal passion. That it, it really bores me to hear writers talk about how I'm driven to write. I'm not driven to write at all. It's a job. It's 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 work. You put your butt in a chair and, and, and you, you crank out a certain number of words and so forth. When I, I wrote my first novel after, I don't know, 40 screenplays, something like that, uh, it was really on a kind of whim. And the idea was just sort of wondering if I could do it. Um, but it, it wasn't out of any sort of passion of I have things I need to tell people and I have stories that are important. It's not important. It's entertainment, for God's sakes. That's what we do. We entertain people. And well, I discovered accidentally that I was okay at it. And, and people actually bought the book. And so then I thought, oh, shoot, I got to start taking this seriously. And, and you know, I've been nine more since then. But the I, I just... I, I think writing is highly romanticized to a lot of people, and, the, and they view it as, you know, some sort of passionate poet sitting up in the garret late at night, conveying grave thoughts and great ideas. It's not that; it's entertainment. It's like telling jokes. If if you're good at telling jokes, you're good at it, and and you can sometimes earn a living at it if you're a little bit lucky. But if you're no good at it, no one's ever going to be able to. Uh, Uh, to teach you how to do it. So you discover you're okay at it and ended up doing it. When you were writing your first book in Bangkok, The Big Mango, um, were you familiar with other books set here? Were you like looking at them? Were you... No, not really. Um, in a general kind of way, I, I was aware that they existed. Um, but the only guy I ever really sort of read who had written books set in Asia, not so much Thailand, was Steve Leather. Um, and I admired Steve's stuff enormously. And, and you, know, you know, 25 years later, uh, we were, uh, I, I met Steve 15 years ago or something like that. And he's a grand guy. He lives here in Bangkok probably half the year, something like that. Big seller in the UK. Uh, used to write really... Uh, uh, Terrific stuff. I mean, stuff of the golden age of Asian fiction. Um, and then his publisher insisted he had to stop. Um, that They told him if he kept writing about uh, Asia, it would ruin his career because nobody wanted to read about Asia. 
And uh, Steve stopped. And he started about 10 years ago trying to get me to stop. Um, and in retrospect, he's probably right. I should have. But I didn't. I, I kept doing what I was doing because I felt a certain obligation to my audience. Every time I thought about going off in a completely different direction, I seemed to see a flurry of nice emails from people saying, oh, wow, you know, I really am looking forward to the next Shepherd book. And, well, yeah, what the hell? So I just kept doing what I was doing. Wait. Steve earns a lot more money than I do there. So what can I tell you? Are you, are you telling you got virtually stuck in Bangkok? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's putting it as well as anything. I mean, I, I have to tell you that uh, um, after every book for 10 years, I've, I've considered never writing another book about Asia. It's not just Bangkok, exactly. That, in fact, uh, my Jack Shepard series, uh, Shepard, uh, a lawyer who uh, comes to Thailand on a bit of a whim when somebody offers him a job teaching at uh, Chula, and he gives up his Washington law practice and takes up at Chula. And over a period of time, Shepard becomes less certain that he made a good decision and um, ends up living in Hong Kong rather than Bangkok. And so the third book, um, the first book was Laundry Man, the second was Killing Plato, both of which were set almost wholly here. Uh, the third book was called A World of Trouble, um, in which Shepard is beaten a hasty retreat to Hong Kong because he just can't take it anymore. But he ends up with uh, one client who is a uh, former uh, Thai prime minister now living in splendid exile in Dubai. And uh, he's plotting a comeback, and he tries to get uh, Shepard to help him. And Shepard wants nothing to do with it at all, but he keeps getting sucked back to, to Bangkok. And then the fourth book was The King of Macau, which has nothing to do with Thailand at all, because... You know, it, we change over time. And I think mm. one of the really nice things about writing a series is that they, they don't match perfectly chronologically. When, when one book ends, the next book doesn't start the next day. Um, and so you, you sample a guy's life in chunks, and they're missing pieces. And if you've read all the books in order, then it takes you a little while to get back into it because people come in and disappear and people die and get divorced and stuff happens, just like real life. And I've always thought it interesting that there are not a lot of books about expats. There are a, a very few, and they tend to be individual novels, not series. In fact, I can't think of another series other than the Jack Shepard series. Um, the first book it, in that series was uh, Laundry Man, right? Yep, that's right. You brought it along. Well, I just happen to have a copy here. There were a couple of passages about Bangkok that I thought were kind of cool. and uh, uh, Because remember... Uh, what a novelist does, I think, is he stands outside of something and then tends to add the detail of what he sees back into the page in order to make something feel real. It, it, it's, it's not reportage, and, and God knows we're not trying to persuade anybody of anything, but the nicest compliment I think I receive is when people write me and tell me things like, gee, I haven't been in Singapore or Hong Kong or Thailand since 1985, but boy, when I read your book, I could smell it again. I could feel it. I was there. And I think that's, I think that's what good fiction does. It, it, it sucks you up and takes you to a place other than where you are, and you kind of ride around with a guy who knows something about it. Um, but there are those who, who 
conclude that, that writers have some kind of axe to grind, that we're trying to convince you of something, that this is a good place or this is a bad place. I, and I just don't feel that way at all. I mean, you describe what you see, and when I finish writing a book, it no longer belongs to me. People who read it then own it. And I'm sometimes amazed what readers see that I never intended. And, and I'll get nice emails from people saying, oh, I, that was really clever, the way you, you reflected the, the second book and the fourth book. And I, I look at that email and I think, well, shit, I mean, she's right. I did do that, didn't I? I never thought of that. I never thought of it. I got a nice email the other day from uh, somebody who said, oh, that was really clever, the way in the, uh, the last Sam Tay book, uh, The Girl in the Window, that he was uh, hiding out in an abandoned travel agency called the Mango Travel Agency. And the guy's, oh, it's so clever. You know, you had a big mango, got it, yeah. And, and I had to think, no, the reason I called it the Mango Travel Agency is I was walking down the street in Singapore and I saw the sign in the window that said the Mango Travel Agency. And I never thought of the connection, but people see this stuff. And, and it's, I mean, that's immensely flattering when people read your work so closely that they remember details about it that you don't even remember. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a smell of that? <laughs> oh, I suppose so. It's, uh, I'm not sure smell is the word that I would have selected there, but uh, we'll, we can live with that. Well, you related that people can smell the city uh, when you describe it. I see what so. you mean. Okay. Um, all right. Let me set the sage a little. Normally, I think uh, writers reading from their work is one of the truly boring things on the planet. But this, we're talking about Bangkok. And, and remember, the, the point of, of the whole series is that this is Shepard a Washington lawyer who is suddenly plunged into the city here and is trying to find his feet. And I think all of us who've lived in other countries, whatever those countries are, remember that there are difficulties involved in that, that it takes us a while to figure out our own process of finding our feet. But one of the things that, um, that really amazed Shepard was when he discovered his fellow expats here in Bangkok And though I don't think he knew exactly what to anticipate, uh, it, uh, it still surprised him a bit anyway. So here's a passage from very early in the book when uh, Shepard is reflecting on what he has learned of his fellow expats. In the hours after dark, a different breed took over Sukhumvit Road. Even at its most benign, Bangkok was part Miami and part Beirut, and there was nothing benign about midnight on the fault line. In the late, late hours, Sukhumvit Road became Blade Runner country. I'd always thought there had to be some kind of international network devoted to coaxing social rejects and dropout cases worldwide into coming to Bangkok, but as come they did. They walked away from third shift jobs in places like Los Angeles, London, Sydney, Berlin, and Toronto, packed what they had, bought a cheap airline ticket, and made their way to the land of smiles. Some were looking for a cheap tropical paradise. Others thought they'd found Sodom and Gomorrah. But almost every one of them was hoping in some way to make a fresh start on a life that up until then probably had little to recommend it. Many of these refugees from reality probably couldn't have located the city on a map before they decided it was the place for them. Maybe they still couldn't. But now Bangkok had become their last, maybe their only hope. In the empty hours, it was this army of the dispossessed that took control of Sukhumvit Road. Tuk-tuks, little three-wheeled motorcycle taxis, flew up and down the street during most of the night, ferrying carousers between two clumps of bars that anchored the neighborhood, Nana Plaza on the west and Soy Cowboy about a mile to the east. 
They were all there, the lonely, the frightened, the guilty, the depressed, and the psychotic. Soaked with sweat, they rushed back and forth from one bar to another, reeking of that peculiarly sour, metallic odor habitually given off by the emotionally overmatched and underachieving. It was this flood tide of the lost and abandoned that owned Sukhumvit Road after midnight. There you go. Does that get you a lot of fan mail? You know, it's it's funny. This this book was first published 2000-2001. So this is this goes back a ways. In the early days of my books being published, they were distributed pretty widely uh, here in Thailand through Asia Book. And I used to get a collection of hate mail from foreigners. And I always, I always thought it was an oddity because uh, what, what, you, what you got was, it was as if you had insulted somebody's girlfriend if they perceived that you didn't love Bangkok quite enough. And I, I just, I always tried to imagine that happening anywhere else, and I couldn't. It's somebody writing Mike Connolly a letter and saying, you suck because you portray Los Angeles as a dirty, dark place. That's just, I can't imagine it. And I don't think anybody else could imagine it either, but it's very common here. Um, and, and I always thought that the most peculiar of all the conceits was the sort of standard attack was, well, if you don't like it here, why don't you go back to wherever you came from? And there is in that, of course, a presumption that we're all here because we chose to be. That of every place on the face of the earth, we chose to be here because it is the best place on the planet. And I, I, for a while I tried explaining to people, don't you understand, there, there are people here because it just kind of worked out like that. They're here because of family reasons or, or employment commitments or you know, all kinds of reasons you can be somewhere. I can't imagine anybody telling a guy who criticized Detroit, if you don't like it, why don't you go back to where you came from? But it was very common here. Absolutely common that it, uh, you know, foreigners would sometimes get incensed because they they concluded that I didn't love Thailand quite as much as they did. Um, but then about ten years ago, that all changed, and for some reason, I stopped completely getting getting hate mail from foreigners and started getting hate mail from Thais, and it was essentially the same hate mail. It was a well, we're we're watching you. Just just today, I got one at. You've been reported to the authorities. What for? I'm not entirely clear, but presumably because I said something somewhere at some point that the guy didn't like. And, and I guess I, there are a lot of theories on, on why the transition occurred, but I have a neat collection of hate mail. I really do. And, and I don't think many novelists get hate mail. And, and, and the reason for that isn't that I, I have attacked Thailand in any way. God knows I haven't. You know, my wife is tied for Pete's sakes. My family is here. That I, 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 I've been associated with this country for 30 years. But there is a sort of sense sometimes that if, if your affection is not unreserved and, and without any criticism, then you are to be condemned. And as I said, the only analogy I can really think of, it's, it's, it's like criticizing somebody's girlfriend. They want to punch you in the mouth because you, you said that she wasn't the prettiest girl in, in town. And I just don't see that happening anywhere else. And, and I, But it does happen here. People develop 
a deep emotional attachment to this city and this country. And they will not abide you not sharing that same emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. Do you think other writers here have similar experiences? I mean, there are many writers who don't portray Bangkok in the best light. I'm not sure. Maybe they're not as widely read as you are or... Um, you know, I honestly don't know. I, I, I've never heard anybody say that they got email like, now I, I have to also say I get an awful lot of really nice mail from really nice people and, and you kind of live off that. Um, I'm, I'm always amazed how many just truly nice people there. They don't want anything. They just want to write you and say, gee, they, you know, that book meant something to me. I enjoyed that. Um, and, and so it's not, I'm not suggesting it's all hate mail by any means, but I, I think probably my books have been distributed more widely than most people and and uh, who've written about this region. And, and the effect of that is that probably generates some of it. But I, I do think it's interesting that the, the foreigner hate mail disappeared about the time I ended my publishing deal out here and my books were no longer available in local stores, so people just didn't see them. Hmm. Uh, but why it would crank up with ties, I'm not quite clear. I, I, I think things have changed in general in terms of the relationship between foreigners and ties over the, the 25 years that I've had a really close association with the country. And I think that's probably some of it, that the ties now feel that expressing uh, dislike of, of foreigners and what they think and what they say is not only permissible, but it's actually pretty cool. Do you think that has changed since you came here the oh, first yeah, time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you go back to the, uh, the 80s, early 90s, something like that, I think one of the things that foreigners loved about coming out here was that the Thai deference toward foreigners was just overwhelming. And, and uh, I think that's one reason this place sucked up so many unworthies over time, is that people came here and, and they, they felt uh, as if they had suddenly arrived in a place in which their real worth was recognized because nobody looked at them and snarled, hey, asshole, get the fuck over there. They just got to do what they wanted. And... Uh, I, But that changed. I think that, that, that changed somewhere over the last five, six, seven years, something like that, in which ties who really didn't want to screw around with us before because they weren't sure of the consequences figured out what the consequences actually were. Nothing. And so we became sort of targets. That's putting it a little harshly, but I think not too harshly. Uh, because foreigners here are without defenses. Um, and as a result, I think expressing your general dislike of foreigners is now viewed as somehow reflecting your love of country. Mm. That if you love Thais and Thailand, then you must dislike foreigners. Now, I, I quickly add one footnote here, because I think when most of us talk about disliking foreigners, whether we mean to or not, we think primarily in racial terms. And I don't think it's that Thais don't like white guys. Thais don't like anybody who's not Thai. Thais don't like Japanese. God knows they don't like Lao. They don't like Cambodians. They certainly don't like Vietnamese. And they don't dislike Europeans or Americans any more than they dislike everybody else. And I think I've always thought that's one problem that Westerners have in coming to grips with Asia in general, that 
we have been so drilled that the concept of race is unacceptable, that we don't like to talk about it, that, that uh, you know, in current political terms, anybody you disagree with is by definition a racist. And, and we're uncomfortable dealing with race. And so when Westerners come to Asia, they really don't know what to do because Asia deals with nothing but race. All cultures in Asia are racially based, whether you're Japanese or Korean or Chinese or Cambodian or Thai or Indonesian, you think first of race. People who are not of your race do not occupy prominent positions in your culture. People who are not of your race are not permitted to do all sorts of things. And Westerners have real problem with that because unless you're able to grasp that concept and deal with it as an everyday problem, you're pretty uncomfortable. And I think, frankly, white guys are pretty uncomfortable dealing with, with racial concepts. And, and when you come to understand that we're nothing here, but it's not because we're Caucasians, it's because we're not Thais. Do you think part of this might also be positive development? Because you said in the past it used to be that there was this over um, deference, this uh, um, bowing to Western culture, and now it's no longer present. Would you also say there's some positive aspect to that? Well, I take your point, but I, I think I would have to say no, I don't. Uh, that if you're, if there's not much here to defend. I mean, I'm sorry, but I, the, the bluntness is that Thai culture doesn't offer very much. I mean, I suppose there are things that one could be interested in from an academic standpoint, but it's not a very successful country. And there is very little indication now that it is going to become particularly more successful. Education is a disaster here, but it's not an accidental disaster. It's not because people are stupid. Mm. It's because lack of education has all been, always been used by the elites here to keep the country in check. That continues to be the case. I mean, that's not going to be any different. You're, you, you have two kids, right? Yes. Who are already grown up. One is, um, well, well, they're both grown up. They've both studied. Uh, one of them went to school in Thailand, right? Yeah, our youngest uh, went to ISB uh, here in Bangkok until the eighth grade. And then we took him out and put him in boarding school in, in Connecticut. Uh, but that said, ISB is not a very Thai school. Uh, It's uh, ISB is the uh, the sort of uh, gold standard of the American educational system here, and Bangkok Patana is probably the gold standard of the Brit system. Um, but even then, we felt like he was better off in Connecticut, and that was one reason that uh, that we wanted him to go to boarding school there as opposed to staying here. I just the, the educational system, the Thai educational system, is a joke. Uh, its emphasis on rote learning and and uh, and being obedient. Uh, it's what produces a passive culture. But if you're already at the top of the culture, that's what you want, is a passive culture. You don't want a culture that stands up and thinks for itself. You want a culture that shuts up and sits down and does what they're told. And And by and large, that's true of ties. This is not an entrepreneurial culture. Um, but that said... The hardest working, most entrepreneurial people I've known anywhere in the world are working class ties. Those street vendors down there have got to hustle every day of their lives and figure out some way to make a bot. That's, that's hard work, man. That's, that, that requires initiative and labor. But it doesn't translate into, into finding kids who build software companies. 
it, it normally doesn't translate into finding people who start up businesses. Um, the, the Bangkok Post used to run a sort of every two or three day story about some young Thai who, had, who, who was their entrepreneur of the day, who had succeeded at this, who succeeded at that. And almost without question, every time they ran one of those stories, and about the fourth paragraph, you would find the line, from the day she inherited her father's company, but that's the way things work here. People don't, it's not a startup culture. Wealth was developed generations ago, largely by land and by the accident of owning the right piece of land, uh, by the accident of being connected to the right person. But it's, it's not a culture that produces activism. It's a culture that encourages passivity. And therefore, to circle all the way back to your question, no, I don't think suddenly rising up and, and spitting at Westerners or other cultures necessarily reflects anything good. Uh, no one ever fought to defend privilege harder than the guy who did absolutely nothing to earn it. Um, and that's one reason that it seems to me that it's very difficult to see things here that suggests that the future of the country is bright. Mm. Now, that's not the same thing as saying, I think the future of the country is bleak. But if you're going to sit down and look forward, you have to try to find indices which tell you that good things are likely to happen. And I don't see those indices. I just don't see any of them. And, and if that is the case, then who knows? Things may work out great here. But I don't see a reason to argue that they will. Do you think this these flaws in the system, these flaws in society are one of the reasons why it's that enables you to write books. As in, if you set, if you have a setting that has inherent flaws, you immediately have a more interesting world. Whereas in a utopia, it would be very hard to convey challenges and conflict. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point. I think that, that may be so. To be perfectly honest, I've never thought about it very much because, again, to, to go back to what I was saying in the beginning, is I, I don't have anything to sell here. I'm not trying to convince anybody that, uh, that Thailand or Hong Kong or Singapore is a wonderful place or a terrible place. I don't work for the Chamber of Commerce. I observe stuff, and I build that into stories that I make up. Um, And every now and then people accuse me of telling real stories and uh, disguised as fiction. And I have to keep reminding people, I make this shit up, man. I just make it up. And occasionally it turns out to be true. But what I don't make up are the details, what it feels like. And you can bet that if you, in one of my books, you come out of a building and turn right on Sukhumvit to go somewhere, you really do turn right. And I, I think that matters a lot because when you build the detail right, It feels right, and and that's that's what I like about novels when I read them. They got to feel right. In terms of recognition, do people recognize you on the street? More often than I would like, I, I would have to say that because we spend less time in Thailand now than than we used to, um, not as often as it was before. But often, what really bugs me is not that. What really bugs me are the number of times that people will see you, and you don't know they saw you. I cannot tell you how many times my wife comes home and says, oh, so-and-so saw you at the Hyatt today. And I don't even know who so-and-so is, let alone that they saw me at the Hyatt. But I, you know, I, 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 especially for a novelist, you like being invisible. 
But what, what you really want to be is completely invisible. You want to go, be able to sit at a bar or walk through a crowd of people or something and simply absorb what you see around you. You may use it someday. Maybe you won't use it someday. But you don't want to interact with it. When you interact with it, you lose your ability to simply absorb it. And, and I, you know, and Thailand used to work better like that. That the advantage of being a white guy here 20 years ago was you could either be invisible or in control, depending on what you felt like. I mean, you walk up to a, a door here with a security guard standing in front of it. You can bet that if you snap your fingers and point at the door, he'll open it for you. Try that in New York. Hey, asshole, back up. Because then you want to assert yourself. Hey, I'm a white guy. I want to go through that door. Otherwise, you can be invisible. You can just walk by. Nobody will pay any attention to you at all. You can just stroll the streets. Nobody will pay any attention to you. But yeah, it's, you know, people come up to me in restaurants and bars and all that sort of thing still. And I would, I kind of prefer that didn't happen. Uh, but I worry about the one who doesn't come up to me. That's what I worry about. <laughs> Um, you mentioned the conversations with your wife. Are there? Would you say there are cross-cultural differences in your relationship, and are they cross-cultural uh, American UK or uh, American Thai? No, 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 no. I, you know, people spend an awful lot of time prattling about uh, uh, cross-cultural marriages and their difficulties and so forth. We've never found the slightest difficulty there. The problem is the damn logistics. That no. We live in the States and we live here and it's 11,000 miles between those two places and we can't do anything about that. And uh, and our sons are in the U.S. and A's mother is here and can't do anything about that either. So our family is split up by 11,000 miles and the logistics is a pain in the ass. It really is. But in terms of cultural understandings and so forth, nah, nah. Uh, I've never felt that that was an issue at all. Mm. Do you think, like, if you're talking about locations, wouldn't it be in some way easier to write fiction about Asia without being in Asia? I mean, Asia has these really strict libel laws. I was reading your first Sam Tay novel where you described the Marriott Hotel in Singapore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you a story about that. That when uh, wait, 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 what did you what, what do you call it? Uh, like a giant dildo. Yeah. <laughs> It looks like it, man. Have you ever been to Singapore? Come on. That's what it looks like. I, I image searched a picture of it after it's, I read it. So ah, There you go. It looks like a red and green dildo. That's what it looks like. Um, the, the funny part of that story is that um, the Marriott gave me a giant launch party for that book. That's right. And nobody had read it. <laughs> And um, needless to say, there was some embarrassed faces around. Me. No, I, I didn't trash. Did, did you do, a, did you do a reading at the launch party? No, 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 no. Uh, I, um, you know, to be fair now, remember that, uh, that that the reason Marriott comes up in the book at all is because uh, Tay doesn't like Americans very much. Inspector Tay, although he's, his father was American, he really doesn't much care for Americans. And he sees Marriott as a sort of unholy symbol of America. And so he was predisposed to dislike the Marriott in Singapore because it displaced what he thought was a lovely old local department store. 
But when he comes here and, and following the case along and he ends up staying at the JW Marriott here in Bangkok, he finds himself thinking, hey, you know, this ain't bad. This is, you know, maybe, maybe I've been hasty. But nevertheless, about a year after that, I was contacted by the head of PR for the Marriott who wanted me to speak at uh, their annual gathering of general managers in Washington. And they wanted to buy... Uh, 500 copies of the book to pass out to their GMs. And I had to say again, have you read the book? Never heard from her again after that. People just strange. I don't know. They want you to love them. That's okay. Everybody wants to be loved. But, uh, you know, my goal wasn't to trash Marriott. I I thought the idea of a, a Singaporean who didn't much like Americans seeing Marriott as a symbol of America and therefore disliking it was kind of interesting. And, and that's also true. I know all sorts of people who, who think of McDonald's or Starbucks or Marriott as a, a symbol of American imperialism. And, and so they dislike them. You, you mentioned libel laws and so forth. I don't, I don't really think that's an issue. As, as long as, uh, in most countries, not this one, uh, truth is a defense. And and just because you say you don't like something, I mean, doesn't doesn't mean you have libeled them. You uh, it's you only libel them if you tell something that's not true. Uh, and damn it, it does look like a giant dildo. It really does. <laughs> uh, so, so, but just based on like you said, for example, truth is not a defense in Thailand. So you do write differently about Thailand because you live here. No, not really. I mean, I'd, not consciously. I'd, I honestly don't think I have ever thought, oh, gee, I couldn't say that. Now, and uh, a world of trouble is about uh, uh, clash between uh, uh, the reds and the yellows, and uh, uh, and I reversed it. The red shirts were the other guys, and the yellows were the other guys, and, you know, the military was the red shirts. And, and so I just stirred it all up, and it came out fine. I wanted to feel real. I wanted to feel involving, but it's not real. It's not the way it really was. And A World of Trouble, which is actually one of my favorites of all my books, I thought was a terrific novel. And and the politics were completely scrambled up. The only thing that was undeniably true was the deeply personal nature of the clash between the two sides. But if you know Thailand and you read that book, It's like seeing a jigsaw puzzle in which the puzzle pieces are all assembled differently. And it wasn't out of self-protection. I did it because I wanted to avoid anybody saying, you're pushing this line, you agree with these people, you disagree with those people. If you scramble it all up, nobody can say that. What if back in the 70s when you had first come to Thailand, could you have stayed here? Yeah, I, 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 I actually that's a weird story. When I was here, because of uh, my student's father, I met a number of the sort of Western movers around town, one of whom was a guy named Charlie Kirkwood. And Charlie had started what was essentially the first Western law firm out here. And I gave birth to you know, Al Chandler and Chandler and Tong, guys who've been here forever. But at the time, I, I met Al, and he offered me a job. And I, I remember thinking, it's like, 71, 72, something like that? No, it was later than that, because I graduated from law school by then, so it was in 73, 74, just before Saigon fell. But anyway, I just remember Charlie offering the job and thinking, holy Christ, why would I do that? I mean, come on, I'm about to graduate from Georgetown Law and go to Bangkok to practice law? Forget it, man, no way. And 
and then ended up out here for HBO in the 90s and and met A and I've been associated with the country ever since. I just I I do find that truly weird when I reflect back on it. I do. But you could have been admitted to the bar back then still in Thailand. You could have been a practicing lawyer in Thailand. I don't think I would have liked that. I I I, I don't have any sense of being sorry that didn't happen. I, I, I have to tell you honestly that, that I, and, and this, this sounds really corny as hell, but I feel uniquely blessed with the way life has worked out. And there are many times that I'm not at all sure I deserve it. Um, we, we are the sum total of the choices we make. And you make good choices and bad things happen to you, and you make bad choices and good things happen to you. Um, And, you know, I made some of each, but somehow all of these pieces conspired to come together to take me to a place which I don't think you can improve on. I mean, when uh, when we're younger and we look toward jobs and, and possibilities and opportunities, you evaluate those in terms of salary and leverage and growth and all those kinds of things that we think about. But it seems to me the ultimate goal almost everybody has is to get to a point in your life where you can do what you like. Nobody tells me what to write. I mean, you know, publishers from time to time have said, yeah, why don't you do this? Or, you know, I get offers to, why don't you do a screenplay with it? But I just don't do that. I mean, I don't pay my kids school fees off this stuff anymore. Uh, I hope they make money, and, and generally they do make money. Sometimes they make a little money. Sometimes they make a lot of money. That's not the goal. The goal is to do something because I wish to do it. Don't mistake me. I'm not saying, boy, I've done great stuff. I'm saying I feel really fortunate to have arrived at this place and sometimes not even deserving. I think all life is an accident. And, and people who spend too much time sitting down trying to plot out what their life is going to look like, uh, I, I think are wasting their time. Um, uh, what, what is the old line? You make plans and God laughs. Um, stuff happens. And, and if you're good at responding, you're good at reacting, you'll have a better life than if you try to force yourself down a specific pathway. Now, that said, I wouldn't have been able to do what I did as a novelist if I was dependent on being a novelist to earn a living. So if I hadn't done well in the lawyering business and in the film production business, and if I didn't have a reasonable level of resources... I couldn't have become the novelist that I was because at that point I would have to start worrying about how was the book going to sell and, uh, you know, was it going to be more commercial if I did this as opposed to doing that. So that is my advice for all aspiring novelists. Make a lot of money. And when you have a lot of money, then you can be a novelist. But if you're dependent on being a novelist to have a lot of money, you're screwed. Well, that's a good motivational note. Any, if people want to uh, find out more about you, want to read uh, your take on living in Bangkok and follow your characters, how can they do that? Well, there are a couple of ways. I mean, you can buy my books. I recommend that highly. Um, that probably the best thing to do if you're inclined is to just look me up on the on the net. Go to my website, which is just jakeneedham.com. No spaces. Just Jake Needham spelled as one word. dot com. You'll find a page for each of my books there. Um, and if you go to the top of the page, you'll find a link which will let you read the first three or four chapters 
of every book there online to see if you find anything you fancy. The other alternative is about once a month, I write something called uh, My Letter from Asia, um, and they're collected there on my website. Um, and people put their name on the mailing list, and it's not a big deal. I mean, I, I tend to write about whatever is new, whatever happened. The last one uh, was about a trip uh, A and I made to Hanoi a few weeks ago, and uh, my poking around in Hanoi looking for ideas of another book. Occasionally, I write about Thailand. Um, um, I had fun with the column about the uh, the old folks playing bridge in Pattaya who were busted by the cops. Um, uh, that that pissed off a few ties. I got a nice bubble of hate mail after that that I was making Thailand look foolish, and to which, of course, the right answer is, oh, you don't need any help to look foolish. You're doing fine on your own. Uh, but the letters from Asia go back about five years, and they're all collected there. And I encourage you, if you're even remotely interested, all you got to do is uh, uh, go to the page uh, uh, to add your name to the list and uh, and give me your email address, and we'll send you the letters from Asia until you get bored with them, and then you can unsubscribe and they'll stop coming. But uh, I, I, I find readers enjoy them because whatever the topic of the month might be, I very seldom send a letter more than once a month. But it's, it's kind of fun to write, and ideas pop into my head, and it's a different way to communicate with readers. Mm. If there's only one book people pick up that you wrote, which one should that be? Oh, wow. I, I wouldn't. I got two very different series. Uh, the Inspector Tay series set in Singapore. Um, if you know Singapore, and, and Singapore is, is a place that you want to read about, then the Inspector Tay series would be the right one. The, the Jack Shepard books are basically set in Hong Kong, Thailand, Macau. Um, but my standalone novel, which was my first book, uh, The Big Mango, I, it still amazes me. After nearly 25 years, people love that book. And, and it, for a while, was a sort of old-time uh, uh, cult novel among expats out here. And it was almost a film. You remember uh, The Sopranos? You ever watch The Sopranos? Yeah, sure. James Gandolfini somehow got a hold of a copy of the big mango and jim was desperate to make a film out of that when he came off the sopranos and we worked on scripts together i used to sit around uh, uh, the set in in uh, manhattan while they were shooting the sopranos and jim and i smoked cigars and worked on the script and, all, and then jim died and, and the project just went away but uh, jim wanted to do the big mango because he just he loved the idea of of eddie dare in bangkok and so Yeah, maybe that's the book to look at. It, it goes back 25 years now, but particularly if you're interested in, in Bangkok and Bangkok means something to you, you'd probably find something in that book that uh, that you recognize. That's amazing. We'll put links to all of that in the show notes of this episode so people can pick them up right away from Amazon and have them instantly on their phone, Kindle, or actually receive it physical in the mail, right? Is that possible? What a good idea. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Five bucks, folks, for the ebook, and the, the print book's a little more expensive. But if you like print books, you're willing to pay some more, I guess. Okay, thank you so much, Jake. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com. And the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time.